Oral History in Black and White, a podcast on American experiences of institutional racism and the need for repair. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com and the African American Redress Network. Episode 2 on Black Land Loss, Coercion. My father went to Mr. Fink's when he was 17, and he threatened to leave the Fink's farm. And in order to keep him to stay there, Mr. Fink's gave him the deed to 24 acres of land. But my father worked very hard trying to clear the land. There was a rundown shack on the land. And as soon as he got on his feet, had his land, built a house, Old man Dick Finks came back for the land that he had the 24 acres. And within a 24-hour period, an all-white judge and jury took my father's land. One of the most common ways Black families lose their land is by coercion from nearby white landowners who use all-white courts to their advantage. Today's episode features an interview with Betty Kilby Baldwin, author of two books on racial justice, Wit, Will, and Walls, and Cousins. Betty's father's property was taken by a white farmer who had originally deeded him the land. James Lennox, a student at the University of the District of Columbia and intern with the African American Redress Network, begins the discussion. I'm here with Betty Kilby, the author of Wit, Will, and Walls. And today I'm going to be talking to Miss Kilby about um, some of her experience with land loss and her family's experience, as well as kind of an overview of her life history. So I guess my first question is, can you just give me kind of a brief overview of your early life, where you were born, your family structure? What was an average day like in your childhood? Well, I was born in Culpeper, Virginia. I grew up in Front Royal, Virginia. We moved to Front Royal when I was uh, about six years old. We were farmers, and as such, farmers work all the time. Uh, You don't know the word play. From the time you're big enough to collect eggs or throw the corn out for the chickens, uh, it was work. By the time I was 10 years old, I could catch a chicken wring its neck, put it in the boiling water, and get loosen those feathers, pluck it, and then fry it up in the pan in, in the evening time. That was kind of typical for a farm, farm girl. It seemed in the book like working on the farm is something that you're really proud of and that it was an experience that, you know, while it was hard, it brought you a lot of joy. Would you say that's accurate? Because, number one, it was the only life that I knew. And number two, it wasn't all just drudgery because it was a community. And the community made it fun. And it was not just our family, but what we did. Every We knew that every Sunday we would get up and we would have breakfast. After breakfast, my dad would take us to Sunday school and he would come back and get us depending on which Sunday it was, whether we went to church in Happy Creek or whether we went to church in Flint Hill. 
Flint Hill had church once a month on third Sunday. Uh, so our whole social life centered around church and church activities. When you're on a farm, everything centers around like if you plant wheat, um, you look forward to threshing that wheat and having a good crop uh, because that was income when you sold the wheat. It also was flour uh, to make breads uh, for and food. So um, everything just centered around that farm life. And so we embraced it. One question I have for you is that kind of emphasis on hard work that came with working the land and the like just the structure that came with it where you know nothing went to waste you had responsibilities what values do you think that instilled as you that you still carry today well i still say waste not what not it put a strong value of caring for your things uh caring for your body caring for the things that the land produced for you. Every bit of fruit that came off the trees, we canned. We had a garden. What we didn't eat, we uh, put away for the winter canning. And then later, as we progressed in life, we had a freezer, uh, which made it a little bit easier than the canning process. But it gives you a value. It, it helps you to put a value on life and a value on things. It seemed like your parents, in particular your dad, but your mom too, kind of always had a plan for next steps. It was these many animals. The, our plan for this year is we're going to go get a few more cows or pigs, or eventually we're going to get a car or a freezer so that that can help us. And it seemed like they were always building towards something else. That was my daddy <laughs> as, as the caretaker for the family. He was the one that was planning. And so, yes, he was the one who wanted to make sure that his children was taken care of. And um, he would go into the uh, fields and uh, he would set traps. Anything that could generate money, he was doing to take care of his family. He worked a full-time job at, at uh, the American Viscose Corporation. But at the same time, he still um, managed the farm. He bought cows. We had milk cows and uh, my brothers milked and he milked cows until they got big enough to do it himself, themselves. And uh, we had chickens. We took the chickens to the market. Uh, we sold eggs. We made butter. Um, so yeah, it was, it was my father that was always enterprising. Um, to make sure that he had food on the table. He hadn't built a house on it yet, but he had his piece of land. And he was so excited when he took us all over in the truck to see that land. And he was saying, I'm gonna plant my apple trees. I'm gonna plant my fruit trees over here. And I'm gonna have the barn here. And I'm gonna have my meat house here. He had it all painted in his mind. Um, and I, I thought that it was incredi incredibly wise of him. He built a big brick house when most of the um, houses that were being built in that time period were weatherboard houses. They were not brick houses. So he had an incredible insight. I, I think he, I used to tell him he had a direct connection with God. 
and God was leading him and guiding him in the way that he did things. Because once desegregation hit and people were constantly firing on the house, we had storm windows. So that was two window panels. And we had, you could see that indentation where the bullet had hit that window, but it didn't break it and it didn't come through. And the same thing with the brick on the house. For a man with a fourth grade education, he was incredibly wise. My daddy grew up uh, just a step above slavery. While his sisters went to school, he was not allowed to go to school beyond the fourth grade because as soon as he got big enough to be able to do any kind of work on the farm, he had to go into the fields and work or he had to feed the chickens or do whatever it needed done around the house. So he was not allowed to get an education beyond the fourth grade. Even when he turned 17, he threatened to leave. But he was always threatened by the fact that if he left the farm, they would turn him into the board, military board where he uh, would be inducted into the service. And so he, he was always balancing the act as to what he needed to do. Nor did he have, he, he asked for land because he was threatened to leave. And he was given a piece of land. And then they came back and took that land from him. That threat of reporting him so he would have to enroll, was that coming from the Fink family or local authorities? That was coming from the Fink's family. And you know, without an education, you never know whether somebody is telling you the truth or not, or whether that, that threat is real or just a threat. But he, he thought that it was real. And when he got his piece of land, he thought that was real too. But would you be able to, um, just for any listeners who haven't read the book, kind of explain your your family's on your dad's side's history with the Fink family and how that property, that piece of land, uh, came to be in his possession before it was taken from him? My father went to Mr. Fink's when he was 17, and he threatened to leave the Fink's farm. And in order to keep him to stay there, Mr. Finks gave him the deed to 24 acres of land. Well, my father worked very hard trying to clear the land. There was a rundown shack on the land. And he tried for seven years to make turn that land into something that he could live on and raise his family on. It didn't come into fruition. So after seven years, he got married and he left the farm. Once he left the farm, he began to learn, learn business skills from the next farm that he was on. Uh, having married my mother, all of her brothers was working at the American Biscos. They all owned their own homes. And so they convinced my daddy to go to work at the American Biscos. And he went to the American Biscos and he was able to buy another piece of land. And as soon as he got on his feet, had his land, built a house, old man Dick Finks came back for the land that he had, the 24 acres. And uh, my daddy told 
Mr. Banks, that he had worked his blood, sweat, and tears, and he was not going to give him the land back. Mr. Finks had my grandfather to sue my father and had my grandfather to say that he gave the, he only put the land in my father's name to hold in conveyance for him to keep down trouble on the Finks farm. My grandfather sued my father and within a 24 hour period, an all white judge and jury took my father's land and gave it back to my grandfather. And less than a month later, my grandfather uh, received $10 and gave the land back to Omantic Banks. I think about your father and the relationship with old man Fink and you make it clear in the book that besides the already horrific land loss, there was some more really horrific stuff going on. I guess my question is, and you mentioned how forgiving your father is, how did he not let that hatred like in, almost engulf him? He's taken his land, his opportunity at a future, and also pitted his father against him. How did he get to a point where he was still praying for the man. And how did that make you see your father in terms of and influence your own ideas about forgiveness? I told you that he went down on the hill and made a bargain with God. And so you don't make a bargain with God and not honor that bargain. Throughout my life, as a younger person, I was not going to forgive my enemies. I had to grow up, I had to have children, and then I had something personal to me to give up, to let go and let God, and to be able to learn to forgive. Forgiveness is something that is, it, it is incredibly hard because you feel the pain and you remember the pain. And if you don't jerk yourself back to the relationship with God, then it's difficult. I want to talk briefly on the actual court case. At one point when I'm reading your father's testimony, I'm actually thinking to myself, he's the only person who it seems like is giving a straight answer or an honest answer where you're noticing all these contradictions in terms of everyone else who's testifying, whether it be his father, old man Fink. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk about what that experience was like for your father. I know that there are kind of two elements in that you as a younger child seeing him have to testify or seeing the effect on him then. What was that like? And then what was it like years later when you're writing this and he's involved in that process? When my father, at one point in his life, and he wanted the book written, he allowed us to pick documents. The court case was the document that I picked. When I wrote my book, people say, oh, you're embellishing the truth. You're fabricating the facts. 
I wanted the reader to be able to read what I read and to be able to, to come to their own conclusions. Anybody who reads the book don't need to take my word for it. They need to be able to read what I read and come up with their own conclusions. And that's, that's why that, that court document is there. Having seen my father on the hill as he, as he just fell apart when he lost his land, the devastating effect that it had on him just resonated with me. And as, as a young child, it wasn't something that you were ever to forget. It was a significant emotional experience. I want to kind of shift topics. And one thing that I do want to talk about is with this um, loss of land is the opportunity that was lost too. And it, one thing when you were talking about your father and his kind of thinking where he had this master plan, part of it was having that land. And one thing that we know is with land comes this idea of generational wealth. What do you think your family lost out on by losing that land, by having it taken from you? What do you think life would have looked like if you had been able to keep that land and it wasn't stolen? There are so many different things that could have happened. Had he not lost his land, we would not have gotten an education. We would not be plaintiffs and lead people in desegregating the schools. Based on where he was going with this, for us children, <laughs> it drove me to get an education because I didn't ever want to work that hard again and I didn't want to be on the farm. And I think that for the boys, <laughs> I think that I don't think any of them would have wanted to stay on the farm. The work was too hard. So you just never know what he could have done because he had the heart and the mind believing that land was the key. Land ownership was the key to the prosperity. So until we are able to get educated and understand how to invest and how to create generational wealth. We couldn't have done it. It took a generation to be able to get educated. But over a lifetime, I've seen so many African-Americans not having that education on how to create that generational wealth. And one of the reasons that I didn't want to go to in HBCUs, besides the fact that there was not one close enough for me to go to, I wanted to know what the white man did. I wanted the same kind of education that the white man got, because that would help me to be able to decide how to do things. When my children were in college, I had two in college at the same time. I have two daughters that are 11 months apart. And when they were in college, I bought a house. I operated a rooming house. So when they graduated from school, they didn't have a college bill. But had it not been for that education at Shenandoah and meeting people who knew some ways 
to accomplish some things without coming out owing a whole lot of money. Uh, that was the avenue for me. Your father had mentioned that he believes that had he been educated, he would have been able to keep the land. He wouldn't have been in that situation. And you've mentioned to me and in the book, it's very clear that that was his motivation for initially you and eventually your other siblings to attend desegregated school. Can you kind of walk me through not just his thought process on that, but your initial reaction to hearing that that's what you were going to be doing, that you were going to be kind of entering this battle, being a pioneer for civil rights in your area? So if you could just touch on those two a bit, that would be great. Well, my father's motivation for pressuring to get his children educated came from the fact that he lost his land. He felt as though had he been better educated, he would never he wouldn't have he would have been able to hold on to his land. Even today, I don't believe that to be the truth, to be the reality. That was his truth but it was not the reality. He used to say that if he wanted to get something done in the union, there was no way that he could because when they uh, voted on an issue, African-Americans would always be outvoted. And so with that in mind, I just thought that there was nothing that could have controlled him keeping his land once old man Dick Binks put his mind to getting it back and my grandfather having the slate reality. But that was his motivation behind getting us educated. And once he met Reverend Frank, um, who was a teacher at Berryville Johnson Williams School, and he was a teacher at this school, and he was saying, when a child, when your child graduates from this colored school, they're still two to three years behind the average child that graduates from the white school. And all my all my father could see was. Even if I send them to this colored school to get an education, you're still going to be two to three years behind. And so when Reverend Frank told him about the Brown decision and he started to looking into the Brown decision and he saw a way out, he thought that if we got educated in um, this white school, that we would learn the same thing that the white kids were learning and that we would be better prepared for life. To that degree, I believe that he he was on the right track. I have a two-part question is, with the loss of the land specifically, what does reparative justice look like for you? What do you believe justice should have looked like? And then in the broader sense of your activism, where you're not just fighting for yourself and your family, in general, what do you think reparative justice should look like? kind of looked at what reparative justice would be for daddy losing his land. And I said, give me back my value of the 24 acres of land lost over the period of time for the last 70 years plus the interest. And that would not be for just me, but be for the family. That would be justice. This was specifically for the fact that my daddy lost his land. And I believe that my daddy would turn over in his grave if we got back the value 
of those 24 acres of land that was taken from him, plus the interest and uh, the value of that, on the value of that land today. I think when you bring up the interest in the land, what that automatically makes me think of, and I, we, I believe we talked about this last time, was the idea of generational wealth. We know that land is probably the most effective way, land ownership, to build generational wealth. You, though, brought up the idea of education and the scholarship. With you, and I know that education is so much a part of this because, as we've spoken about, it was this whole journey. Your father, one of the ways he fought that injustice was his insistence on education for you. What role do you think, not just in your family history, but reparative justice in general, does education play? Oh, education plays a major role. When I look at my sister who graduated, she graduated from Warren County, but she was only there for one year. So she was able to get her education without trauma. She was able to go on to Howard University. She got her bachelor's degree. She got her master's degree. Me? <laughs> when I compare myself as being the one who fought, I feel as though I broke the ice. I fell in, but others came across that ice and benefited from it. And so I see what my struggle and my foundation did for a whole lot of people in this world. Now, this money that I would get from the land, that would go into a scholarship fund. Because at 75 years old, I've accomplished just about everything that I've set out to do. I have enjoyed my life. Just like all the proceeds from the book Cousins, goes into the scholarship. So I am leaving something for these children. And that's the opportunity to get an education. And that opportunity will take them further than any amount of money that I can leave with them. And for me, I will get the satisfaction of knowing that any of, if any of these children who want to go to school they will have the foundation. I think that there's such a clear connection between the loss of land, as we've talked about, and education. Having been through all of that, how do you identify yourself? Do you still identify yourself as, like you said, a fighter? Or is it now more of what you're doing with the scholarship and your work, an agent of change? I think that I am still a fighter. It's in my DNA. It's in my genes. My grandkids, the two grandkids that I raised, they say, Mima, don't play. <laughs> and they, they, they are absolutely right. If, if I see something, I'm going to go for it. You know? Sometimes as we go around the uh, country and we do these presentations and people ask, what can we do to make this world a better place? And I say, everybody can do something. Even if it's no more than getting to know someone who is not like you. And, and 
working on a project to help somebody else. When I travel and I speak, I will touch the lives of those that are in front of me in our virtual calls, in our book signing. Um, I will reach those. And then I say, each one, reach one, teach one. With that being said, I feel incredibly honored to have had this experience with you, Dr. Kilby. Then you do something with it. Don't let it just sit and gather dust and just be a project, but make it worthwhile and meaningful. I understand that there, there can be something done. So I want to thank you for that challenge. Welcome. Thank you. This interview with Dr. Betty Kilby Baldwin was conducted by University of the District of Columbia student James Lennox and produced by Lottie Liebdula. Special thanks to Dr. Linda Mann of the African American Redress Network, a collaboration between Howard and Columbia Universities, and Tamara Roan of reparationsforslavery.com. You've been listening to Oral History in Black and White, a podcast on American experiences of institutional racism and the need for repair. Brought to you by reparationsforslavery.com and the African American Redress Network.